I am a visual learner. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm easily entertained. Uh, I, I can watch and I can observe uh, theories lived out are powerful and impactful. And so that's why I want to begin this morning with two very visual stories, encounters, real life encounters, that Jesus had with two very opposite individuals. Individual one was dragged into his presence while being caught in a lifestyle of sin. In other words, they were making daily decisions to ignore God and his truths. The epitome of what we would say is, well, selfishness. Individual two needed no help. He came running towards Jesus. He dropped before Jesus. And he, we are told, was an individual that spent a lifetime of obedience, of commitment to God and the laws. His whole desire was to please God. And so we have two very different people. One of them left relieved, hopeful, Possibly more determined than ever, but definitely absolutely grateful for that encounter with Jesus Christ that day. But the one that we assumed left that way is not who you would expect. Because the other one left very sorrowful, deject, saddened. It was written all over their face. They were caught. But again, not who you would assume. In John 8, we are introduced to the sinner caught in adultery, a woman. She's dragged before Jesus by the religious leaders of the day. And it was this incredible encounter where we have heard many times before, where Jesus knew the hypocrisy that was going on through the religious leaders that brought her to him. He knew that they were basically trying to set up a trap to catch him in the law issues of things. And so we are very familiar with Christ's response when they asked that she be stoned according to the law of Moses. Now they knew, and Jesus knew, that only Rome at that time had the authority for capital punishment. And so we read in John 3, or 8 verse 7, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And we are told then, one by one, the accusers left in silence. I, it is interesting, they say the older ones first. To which then Jesus turns to the woman, and we read, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now, leave your life of sin. Our next encounter was Mark ten seventeen. And we read, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in the ensuing conversation, which I do not have up there, but he spoke of the commandments, the law of Moses, and he said, yeah, don't murder, don't commit adultery, uh, don't steal, don't defraud and lie, honor your parents, you know, and the eager young man responds, teacher, he declared, I have kept all of these since I was a young boy. And then then we're told some very telling words. And, you know, I don't know why I've never really seen this before as deep as I did this time. But suddenly we read, Jesus looked at him, it says, and loved him. And I was thinking about that. I'm going, well, I'm sure his parents loved him. 
extremely proud. They boasted of his success as an individual who honored them, who, who believed in God, uh, adhered to the laws. According to the text, as we see, that he obviously was very successful in life and wealthy in the process. He, he had a healthy curiosity. Here was this new rabbi on the scene, and he's running to this rabbi. Good teacher, he cries out. What must I do? He was a man of action. What do I got to do? Discipline, honorable. No wonder Jesus loved him. And then Jesus throws the curveball. Oh, one thing you lack, Jesus said. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went uh, went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, two visual stories. I give them to you because I want to now ask the crux of where we're going this morning. The question, was Jesus encouraging? Was he encouraging? See, we're told that encouragement is the action of give some support, some confidence, give someone hope like we sang about. Based on these words, one might question how Jesus kind of handled this scenario, this encounter. He basically comes to them and says, okay, stop sinning. Everything you're doing to this point, stop. And you sell everything you have. Stop what you're doing. Rearrange. So to this point in their lives, just stop it and do something else. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if I had some religious teacher in a seminar or even a preacher come up to me and says, well, basically, you've got everything wrong to this point. Uh, here, give it all up. I, I might question it. Now, if I'm living in a negative lifestyle, I might say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm told, but who are you to judge me? You know, in our culture, that's, you know, or in the radical of selling everything, that's what we call fanatical, guys. So the word for encourage, though, as we're in this series of one another's, and this is encourage one another, the word for encourage in the Greek is parakalo, which it does carry the sense of support and confidence and hope. But as well, and this is what we need to understand, it says exhort, urge, strengthen, or appeal to that person. You see, biblical encouragement is not simply being... Go, guys, go! And this cheerleader coming along, regardless of what you're doing, and going, we can do this! You know, that individual says, oh, it's positive, don't talk negative. No negative talk here, it's all positivity. And so we come up with all these cliches to pump you up, right? And we go like, hey, tomorrow's another day. Better late than never, huh? Oh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Laughter! It's the best medicine! Never cry over spilt milk. Now, it's not that truth doesn't exist somewhere in some of those. I don't want to write them off completely, but let me give you another one that's going to tie in. Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. See, that could truly be reflective of many people with regards to biblical encouragement and God's truths. So we come up as, as a culture, and it's, we've seen this develop over many years, that say, well, truth, well, what's truth? It's not absolute. It all depends on your perspective or understanding. And if your understanding changes about something, well, then maybe your truth needs to change. And that's not new. 
It was Jesus standing before Pilate. And Jesus makes this comment in all the questions. And Jesus at one time says, well, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. <laughs> in which Pilate goes, ah, Jesus, what's truth? And that's where I had immediately came back to Jack Nicholson and a few good men in the courtroom being confronted with his authority. And he does that classic line because he's getting really mad at the guy questioning him. And he says, truth, you want truth, you can't handle the truth. And I looked at that and I said, wow. That's kind of like some of us today, a lot of people. The problem is we can't handle truth. So we hide from it, or we masquerade it, or we ignore it, or we talk about, you know, well, that's, you know, for that group over there. And I'm thinking maybe biblical encouragement is more along the lines of not just, you've got this, keep going, but as Jesus illustrated, you got to stop, don't keep going. Things have got to change. You're heading in the wrong direction. And that's why throughout Scripture, right from the very beginning in the Old Testament, his followers are always told what? Be strong and courageous. Courage, encouragement is to instill courage in another individual and in the promises of God. And so his commands are there, yes, to love and affirmation, but as well, truth. You can't avoid the truth aspect of it. It's not simply about, I just want to be nice. I just want to be nice without facing truth. Now I say this because our text this morning in Hebrews 3, 7, 19 helps us get a little grasp of why that we often have a misguided understanding of encouragement. And so we read Hebrews 3, 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, so we're starting out with a really good source here, friends. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So then he preps us for the crux of this. We go down to verse 12 and says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I like how the message puts this one. It says, make sure there's no evil unbelief lying around that you will trip up on and throw you off course, diverting you from the living God. Just make sure it's not lying around. And then the verse continues. But encourage, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be what? Hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, there's the crux of it. Encouragement had everything to do with our walk with God, with our faith in God, with our trust in God. Not simply faith in ourselves to overcome problems and pump up and get our feet out of bed. That's important, but the crux of it had to do with God. Always does. And so as the young rich man discovered, self was the problem. There was something gripping in his life. Someone or something else had control. He was good in so many facets. But Jesus could have literally gave the same statement to him as he gave to the adulterous woman. Now go and sin no more. See, we like to classify sins. But sin, friends, has a lot of different faces. And we're good at prioritizing. But we all know Romans all, all have sinned. 
And it is in the midst of rebellion, in whatever shape or form it looks like, these multifaceted faces of sin, that we, in the process, begin to lose sight of truth, real truth. And then ultimately that leads to losing sight to Jesus, who is the truth. So even in the context of the Pharisees, who were extremely religious, their lives centered around religion, all the way to the honorable young man who was obedient and loving and did everything you would want a child to do up to that point, all the way to the woman, and let's not forget the man who just was left out in this whole thing by them. There were, took two of them, okay, just so you know, okay? But sin finds itself with everyone at different degrees because we are all, I am all so easily able to fall into it. I'm, I, I can be deceived by sin in so many ways by being distracted, by being unforgiving, by being angry. And that's why Paul would state in Romans 12 too, guys, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't do it. See, that's the pattern of this world. But be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. It's going to take work. And that word renewing in Greek takes on the same connotation as renovation. And I'm about renovations. I love renovations. And he's saying, you guys, you need to renovate your minds. You need to change your thoughts. Some of us have to deal with this outdated tape that's been playing in our head for centuries maybe. Over and over, and we're fixating on it. Something that someone said or did or a false lie we believed. Maybe it's that the jealousy or the anger, the doubt, but whatever it is we're obsessing over, they all contribute. Every aspect of these contribute to a heart that slowly begins to harden and become callous. And Isaiah summed it up really well when he said, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds, again, are steadfast and those that they trust in you. See, that's it. It always, always comes back to God. So how do I encourage you today? How do I help you understand the calling that God has on each and every one of our lives? And it's always not as difficult as you think. And we can simplify it many times, and I can simplify it in two words. And we can simplify No God. No God. No God's promises. And then he says, I'll give you direction. Your calling, pursue Christ in absolutely everything everything that's why jesus said you can sum up all the laws guys love god love people love it's got to saturate through that and we know that there are so many times i need courage infused in my life to do that because there's a lot of times i do not want to love other people god i would never outright say i don't love them i'll be angry but i mean i'll never say that but people i can say that quite easy and there's a reason then why truth itself, when we look at our culture today, is often defined as so relative and watered down and undefined and softened. And then we throw slants to it like just stay positive and avoid all negativity. And you know what? You're not as bad as you think. Like the rich young man. Oh, okay, you did everything. You know, wealth. You're getting the grip of wealth. 
And then I thought, what an interesting and unforeseen enemy they can come in and begin to shape his mind. And Jesus knew wealth was shaping this man's mind in a way that was away from God. Not that wealth is evil, but it wasn't helping him. And I would look at that and say, okay, yeah, our wealth may not be monetary issues, but wealth of pride exists in some of us, worldly knowledge and wisdom, a wealth of maybe just pursuing adventure and excitement and experiences that that's what life is all about. So we put everything we have, our resources and our time into those things. Maybe our wealth is something as healthy as our families, our status. Maybe it's even the pursuit of becoming physically healed in some way. And Jesus might at some point come to us and say, like the rich young man, you've you got to drop it all to follow me. All of it. Are you willing to do that? Because Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And to encourage anyone, and not that we can encourage in other ways, in practical ways, but to ultimately encourage anyone in any other direction than Jesus it's the wrong way. That's ultimately the best encouragement I can give anyone. Because if there's unbelief lying around that we can trip over and divert us from God, we need to address it. And so the text that we have in Hebrews, the last two verses that it, of the part that I picked in 18 and 19, it was saying, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. You know, when I was reading that, obviously there's, there's connections back to the Old Testament, and I find it fascinating, and we're going to find this in our journey to the cross towards an Easter, but this overlap between of Scripture and all, you know, from Genesis right from the creation of humanity to the crucifix, there's this foreshadowing, there's this pointing towards what is coming. And that's why we read in Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. But they all lived with this pointing towards that. The foreshadowing even of kingdom principles is found throughout the Old Testament. And so we have the Exodus and this incredible picture, the fleeing of a group of God's chosen people to say you can get out of that which grips you in your life, the slavery that holds you back, and you can look and move towards the promises of God and be free in those promises and so throughout the Old Testament it is the story of God's chosen people and the roller coaster of ride up and down that we observe in this incredible journey and if they wavered and if they sinned and if they forgot or they got preoccupied with anything else but God they paid a price And at one point, we're even told the one generation, God says, okay, that is enough. You're not getting in. Forty years, you're going to wander. And it's this formula that continues. And so kingdom after kingdom, king after king, we hear little phrases like, oh, by the way, this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And there was, and then another king, well, this king had some good things about him, and then he benefited to that. But the whole essence of encouragement, all the prophets then that were brought to instill and encourage the people was to be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Don't give up on the principles. Don't give up God. Put the idols away. It's just constantly through there. And that now is how our kingdom living is there as well. 
And so 2 Chronicles 19.9, we read, you must serve faithfully. You must serve wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord and the awe, the reverence. And then verse 11, it says what? Act with courage so that the Lord will be with those who do well. And so the Old Testament foreshadowed this, kingdom living, And the New Testament writers just picked up on it and kept going. And now we had the crucifixion. We have the revelation, the promise, the Messiah, the new covenant, all that comes on. And so then the authors in the New Testament, they start writing like James 4 Come near to God and he will come near to you. And then he immediately says, oh, and in the process, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded people. (laughs) Feeling a little preached at? A little judgmental? A little harsh? I second-guessed even sometimes how I would say this. And then I thought, you know what? It's the most loving thing I could do. It's the most loving thing anyone could ever express to you. The greatest act of courage you could give and receive is to hear the love behind what God is asking, what He's pleading for, to the extent he says i'll send my son to be beaten and tortured and thrown up there to bear the weight of your sin that's how desperate i am for you to hear this that's the encouragement you know israel walked through the red sea again symbolism images it it more than you can even imagine and so they walked through the waters to salvation to the promised land, to the place of God's presence. Today we say, oh, we walk through the waters of baptism to represent our salvation through the person, through truth, Jesus Christ. So we can escape the slavery and the grip of those things. But in that journey, we know there are many times that things begin to come in and we can become hard. And so I say, Glenn, you wake up in the morning and you can breathe and it's a new day. You have a greater purpose than simply making it through that day. You have a greater purpose than even feeding your family and loving your kids and cheering your friends on and building a retirement nest egg and even serving one another. You have a greater purpose than loving. As important as these are, the bottom line is if they're void of the truth, Jesus Christ, it's a waste, a complete waste waste and God knew that it would take courage it it would be the body of believers coming alongside to defeat sin's ability to sneak in and harden our hearts a deceived a rebellious heart a heart that's distracted and so Jesus says yeah the world's full of trouble but don't worry I overcame the world his disciples yeah you know what world's gonna hate you going to hate you and there's an enemy that that's going to try and distract you in any way and and so there are going to be times like the prophet elijah where i got really he got really depressed he got discouraged and there are times that many of us fall into sin a man in the early church that if we were going to pick out someone who could model outside of Jesus Christ was a man by the name of Barnabas. Very quickly as I wrap this up. His name meant son of encouragement. And when we're first introduced to him, it's really easy to miss it because of what happens just after we hear about Barnabas in a brief statement. 
See, the church was in its early format, its early stages, and people are pumped, and people are coming to the Lord, and the numbers are growing, and people are going, oh, it's not stuff. And unlike the rich young guy, they go, oh, I'll give my property to you. And they were sharing everything in common. And we know this story because of that one incident that happened to a couple that lied about how much they sold their property for, and then suddenly they literally dropped dead on the spot. Right in the middle of good stuff happening. Poof. And what do we read in Acts 5.11? Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. See, they, they were learning very quickly the impact of sin on their lives. But just prior to that, the verse before, we read Barnabas, Acts 4.36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. See, I like, again, the other guy, he said, no problem. Here you go, guys. I'm excited. And then the second time we read about him is in Acts 9.27. So it talks about when he came, not Barnabas, Saul, who turned to Paul, who had the big vision on the road to Damascus when he came to Jerusalem he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him they weren't sure if he was legit or not was this a trap was he going to kill us and not believing that he really was Barnabas took him brought him to the apostles told them how Saul in his journey seen the Lord what the Lord had said on the way to Damascus that he preached fearlessly it was Barnabas again who said no no this is legit it was because of an encourager in the faith that he even addressed the early church leaders and kind of say, okay, we're preaching forgiveness and love. It can happen even to the worst of the worst, Paul. I know you doubt it, but it can happen. Encouragement can give hope. That's why Romans 15.4 says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Why? So that through what? Endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we have hope. And then the third time we encountered Barnabas was in Acts eleven twenty three when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done in another town. He was glad, encouraged them to what? Remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. There it is. And he was a good man, Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I'll say it again, to encourage one another people is to inspire courage and hope in them. Because our bodies break down. Our plans falter, our dreams die, our resolve weakens many times, our perspective can dim in the middle of busyness and hectic lifestyles. Then you add to the fact that the scripture says, oh, by the way, there is promise of suffering and trouble and persecution and trials of many kinds. And so God says, I know we need encouragement in all the ways possible. So hands-on, practically, yes, cheerleading as well. But the infusion of courage is one of the greatest things we can do. And it's not courage just to get up, but to do everything feasible in your life to know God, to live in Christ's presence constantly. It's your greatest hope. And that's why it's one of the most important ministries as this one author writes. He said, encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. The ministry of encouragement, therefore, isn't optional or just for people with a knack for it. Real encouragement has authority over all of us. It deserves nothing less than to set the predominant tone of our churches, our homes, our ministries. So let's think it through and then let's get after it. 
Encouragement is about the life-giving power that is promised through Scriptures in the person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it is about bringing this life-giving presence to one another, experiencing the Holy Spirit together, addressing anything and anyone that would want to separate us from that. And that is even discouragement, and it is hard work. But anything that has a grip on our life is worth addressing. And it's not about simply scrutinizing and trying to solve their problem or even to cast some judgment. Well, if you hadn't have done this, you know, my son is now in a ministry that deals with those in Abbotsford that are on the street and they've got safe needle sites and all this kind of stuff. He says he went there on a Sunday morning in the encampment. He saw a lady reading a book and he walks over to her as she's doing heroin. And he walks over to her and says, hey, what are you doing? What are you reading? He wasn't saying what you're doing with the drugs. He said, what are you reading? She goes, the Bible. Really? He says, oh, I love my God. He texted the family. So quick to judge. So quick to think. That if, oh, if we do that. And that's why when Jesus addressed that, remember that little phrase? He looked at this rich young man and he loved him. He loved him. It has to be, as Romans said, Paul taught us, speak truth in love. And we love in this process, but we don't ignore. And we come alongside. And when we have a soft heart because of the time we spend in God's presence, we will be then capable to turn to one another regardless of who they are, what they have done, or what they have done to you. And we will lay stones down and we will walk in faith and in hope and like Jesus, we will look at them and we will love them and each other and then we will speak words of encouragement. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You encourage us through all that you have done and given us, as fragile and weak as we are, as sinful as we are. You have called us to a great task, living community with each other. But God, you've given us the ability and the power and the hope and the promises to do it all. Will you help us get out of the way? Will you help us soften our hearts? Will you help us stay in your presence so that we in turn can love one another as Jesus loved us. Lay our lives down for each other. Encourage one another. Because we want to be about kingdom building and all the promises that come through it. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.